Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. What's up, guys? Morning. Hope you're doing well. Uh, How do you guys feel about setting expectations? Is this good? Is this bad? Do we like this? It seems pretty common. Man, you guys are overweighted to the right side today. This is really strange. Sorry for you weirdos sitting over there on the left. Man, we didn't get... Oh, sorry, this is backwards for you, I realize. Yeah, you're right, you're left. Now you understand. Yeah, stage right. Anyway, uh, I don't know how you guys feel about setting expectations, like when you're at the doctor and they're like, hey, you're going to feel a slight pinch, and then they stab you with something. Like, I don't know if that's better or worse. There's really, like, no good way. You've probably, you've gotten enough blood drawn in your life, I would imagine, that you've gotten it every way, right? You've got, like, the sneaky one. You've got the, like, this might tickle a little bit. They're like, look at this, don't look at this, like, all this stuff. None of them are good, right? You never walk away and you're like, oh, I'm glad they did that. That worked out really well. Uh, I don't know how you feel. Like, there's other ways you can set expectations. I feel like when you get a job, somebody can tell you, hey, this is, you know, you're going to be doing this, and then later on you're like, well, at least I knew it was coming. The most confusing thing, I think, about setting expectations is pregnancy. Uh, You know, people tell women who are thinking about getting pregnant, they're like, so you're going to gain, like, 500 pounds, and then you're going to give birth, and it's going to be the most painful experience that you've ever experienced, and you might pee, and you might poop, and you might die, and that's what's going to happen. And I don't understand why women sign up for this. I really don't. I really think, like, this setting expectation, it must be like a man, male-female thing. I don't really know. I'm not signing up. I think this is the primary reason why you don't see a lot of pregnant men, actually, because it sounds terrifying, right? Like, just setting the expectation. You know exactly what you're walking into. I don't know. The dudes are back here like, "Ah, I'm not so sure I'm signing up for that whole thing. Sure, you get a baby, and it's a miracle, and that part's amazing. Just sounds a little terrifying, right? That's actually what Jesus is talking about today. Not about getting pregnant, uh, not about anything like that, but he's actually setting some expectations. He's letting you know exactly what is going to happen when you follow him. And I got to be honest with you guys. I don't know if you were listening while Chick Cash was reading. It didn't sound all that pleasant. He wasn't giving you the like big pitch of like, hey, this is going to be fine. You're not going to feel anything. This was the, hey, this is going to be a little bit hard kind of setting expectations, right? And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, last week was challenging and convicting and makes me think. And there's a lot of work to do. Uh, Give us a break, right? Give us one week that is a break. But ironically enough, I am not going to do that and probably not going to do it next week either. Because this little passage of Scripture that we're in, chapter 10, where Jesus sends out his first disciples, the first one, he is like, go, go get them. You're going to be able to cast out demons, and you're going to be healing people of diseases. Go, go, go. Go get them. And then after that, it is just the entire rest of the chapter of like, here's the expectation that you should have going into this. And in some ways, it's not going to be good. Normally, I feel like it's my job to make following Jesus seem more possible and delightful because the world outside often tells you that it is the opposite. Very often, I get up here and I try and work really hard to make sure that you know that Jesus is better than the idols of work and power and money and status and whatever else that we try and chase in our lives. And today, uh, I don't really get to do that. I normally try and get up here and explain to you why Jesus is better than all of those things. And I still believe that he is better. But today... I want to do just the opposite in some ways and tell you that following Jesus will indeed invite suffering into your life. Following Jesus will indeed invite suffering into your life. This is also in context of what we talked about last week. 
So if you have no interest in sharing and showing this kingdom, you're probably not going to be interested in hearing why that's going to make you suffer. If that's the case, I would invite you right now to just go ahead and take a nap. It's warm and cozy in here. Just chill, relax. Hey, I'd really, I've, I've had plenty of people fall asleep while I'm up here talking. Uh, I won't judge you at all. Some people might need a nap, right? But man, if this is something, if following Jesus is something that you want to do, if sharing his good news and his good kingdom with other people is something that you feel like is important in your life, then what is happening today is Jesus is telling you exactly what to expect, and he's also telling you how to deal with it. So can we just collectively sort of all lean into that in this moment, entertain this idea? This is the anti-sales pitch, but this is the truth. Jesus is letting us know what to expect for following him. I'm going to read through some of uh, what Cash already read a little bit, but this time I want you to be thinking about it. I want you to think about these individual punishments uh, that Jesus lists out, these sort of persecutions for following him. And I want you to think in your own mind, which of these would be the worst to you? If these were happening to you, which one of them would be the worst? Verse 16, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak and what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? I don't know if many of us in this room have experienced things that bad. Maybe you've experienced these to some degree. I know many of you have experienced some sort of rift with your family. Uh, luckily, maybe your brother hasn't handed you over to death yet. I don't know if that's happened to anyone, if anyone had any sort of epic brother-to-brother show, showdown or something. But you probably have experienced some of these in some small way, right? I mean, in some way, you can imagine these happen or they've happened to Christians around you. And you might think to yourself, as we lean into this moment, you might say to yourself, well, I don't really face any of this because I really, really work hard to live at peace with everyone. And believe me, that's a good thing. You should do that. You should really try and work to do that. Paul even says that we should do this as much as it is possible by you. But even implied on that statement by Paul of saying, like, do this as much as possible by you is the implication that it will not always be possible by you. And the truth is that there is, if there is nothing that puts you at odds with a culture that rejects your God, you must ask yourself the question, are you really living for him? If there's nothing that makes you look any different from the culture around you, the culture that is not on God's side, people that would say, hey, I don't even really follow your God. If you don't look any different from them, how are you different from them? How are you actually doing something different? We are living in a day and age where it is like we are crossing a stream without trying to get our feet wet. We're actively stepping on these stones trying to stay out of the water. 
And the culture is like the water surrounding us, and it is slowly, slowly, slowly continuing to rise. And I know the culture is probably the wrong word. It makes it sound like we're like us versus them, inside versus outside. Those guys are all evil. We're all good because we're in here. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that general just sort of opposition to Jesus is rising around us. And many of us are like trying to walk across the stream, desperately trying not to get our feet wet, not, not having to get dirty, get our hands dirty, get messy as we interact with people who don't follow Jesus. And eventually, you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to say something or do something or get rejected or turned down for an opportunity because you are following Jesus. Or you're going to start hunting so hard for rocks to stay out of the water that you start walking backwards. It's a tricky thing, and I don't want to make light of it. In fact, Jesus is here is telling us that it is supposed to happen. It's going to happen. When you're following Jesus, people are going to be opposed to you, opposed to you doing that. They're going to be against you. You're going to have people kick you out of their house and their town. It's going to split families apart. It could even cost you your life. And the simple idea that I want you to take from this is that a life following Jesus that is fully accepted and embraced by a culture that is not following him is not what Jesus told his disciples to expect. So I don't think we should expect any different either. And here's what I know to be true from experience and what Scripture confirms, that when God convicts and even disciplines us, that it is a healthy thing. So I want to say this and muster all the heat and weight of this statement so that we allow it to crush us for a moment so that God may be able to rebuild us into the people that he needs us to be. Because in verse 32, he says this, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus here lets us know it'll be hard standing up for him, but the alternative is much harder. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, I want you to know that Jesus' grace still applies to this statement. Jesus would very often do this. We saw this a lot when we were in the Sermon on the Mount where he would say something very, very extreme. And he would let you know that to do the opposite is to sin, to break the will of your father. But then he was also going to die on the cross for those sins and cover up. So I don't want you to hear this and be like, oh man, there was one time when I didn't stand up for Jesus. Now he's gonna deny me before his father in heaven. But he is letting you know that though his grace still abounds, this is something that would force him into a place where he would deny you before heaven, before his father. Like without his death on the cross that pays for even this sin, his response to you denying him before men is to deny you before his Father who is in heaven. It'll be hard standing up for Jesus, but the alternative is much harder. So 
So now that you're all excited and motivated and super excited, the question is, how do we respond? And luckily, Jesus actually tells us. He tucks away in this passage five different commands to help us deal with living a life of having opposition against us, of having persecution against us, of having people standing up and fighting against us. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share what Jesus says. I'm going to offer some modern-day equivalents and some possible thoughts and to see what happens. Now, it's possible uh, that you could hear these as sort of shaming, as guilt-inducing, and I want you to hear that that is not at all my intention. In fact, everything that has happened up until this point is something that you can be forgiven of, something uh, that Jesus died for, and what I want you to hear this as instead is a challenge to all of us. If you're a person in this room who couldn't change the way that you're living, who couldn't live a little bit more for Jesus, who couldn't live better as they're following Jesus, man, you need to, like, tell me your secret. Like, if you think you're already doing it correctly, then, like, man, I feel like you should be up here teaching us all. But if you're a person that's more like me, who's willing to say, man, I know I mess up sometimes. I'm not doing this right. I don't even know how to play the game sometimes. What Jesus has for you today is a challenge. You may have grown up and been accustomed to hearing that if you've done something wrong or you haven't done something as well as you could have, then you are worthless as a person, and that is not how Jesus looks at you. Or you may have been conditioned to believe that if someone tells you to live your life differently, then you must be a bad person for the way that you have been living, and that's not the way that Jesus operates either. Instead, Jesus, in his typical ways, says that you will face hardship for following me, and instead of the broken ways that you have been taught to deal with facing hardship, I'm going to teach you some new ways. I'm going to teach you some better ways. You can deal with it completely in the opposite way because you have me. All right, so five ways. Here we go. First, Jesus tells us to shake it off. He says this in verse 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. This actually comes from an old Jewish idea that if you went to a pagan town, so if you visited a town where people didn't believe in your God, they would shake the dust from their feet before they arrived home. They didn't want to take any dust back from that house into their home, so they would have to shake it off before they came back inside. Legend has it, this was actually the primary source text for the song Shake It Off by Taylor Swift, which, from research, tells me is an up-tempo dance pop song featuring a saxophone line in its production, and it is about Swift's indifference to her detractors and the negative view of her image. So, Jesus suggested at first Taylor Swift made it catchy, as we all know. Uh, There is something here that Jesus is actually trying to teach us, and that Taylor Swift affirms later, about taking rejection with you. There is a real temptation whenever you get rejected, and when you get rejected for Jesus even more specifically, to sort of carry that weight around. And we, as people living in the year 2023... Uh, are people that are averse to discomfort. Now, everyone's always been averse to discomfort, but never before, I believe, uh, has there been a generation so strongly averse to discomfort and with so much power to actually avoid it. Now, I think about generations a lot, and you can talk about, like, things that wax and wane, and some things come in, and, you know, people always say, like, you can't make a statement like, this is the most wicked generation, because it's kind of, like, tough to compare. But I think this is something that you can compare, that your daily life, without even working hard or really even needing all that money, much money, power, or authority, is so much more comfortable than so many generations that have lived before us. If you want to fight me on that, then I would just point to one thing, air conditioning. I mean, come on. Really, like, we live a very, very comfortable life, right? That 
suggests to us that we should continue to fight off more and more discomfort. And when you experience rejection, when you can't shake it off, it forces you to want to avoid that rejection even more. Jesus here is saying that to a generation that is averse to discomfort and rejection like ours, we should become better at shaking it off. That in fact, the better that we can be at shaking off rejection for Jesus, the more willing we would be to walk into it again. Right? I mean, pose two scenarios in your mind. Something happens to you, you don't like it, you get rejected, and then you dwell on that for six months. How willing are you going to be to walk into that same situation again? Not very willing at all. Now something terrible happens to you, you get rejected, and you shake it off. You're able to sort of walk away from that situation. You're able to get rid of it. Are you going to be more willing to walk into it again? I would think so. One time, uh, I was trying to share the gospel with my neighbor. This is back when we lived up in Chaffee Park, and, uh, which is like north side of Denver. And I was like, man, we've had some serious conversations. We're close to each other. He knows. He trusts me. This is the moment. So we go out. And we're like grabbing some food. And I'm like, hey, what do you think about Jesus? And he's like, I'm not really sure. And I was like, well, let me tell you what I think. And I kind of shared my testimony with him and everything like that. And he's like, that's nice. And I was like, it is. And he's like, you know, it's good to have something spiritual. And I'm like, sure. Like, that's not what I was saying. I'm sitting here telling this guy, I'm like, there is a Savior, and he saved me uh, from my own sins, from eternity without him. This is the God that has rescued me, and I believe in it with all my heart, and it's changed my life completely and radically, and I wouldn't be the same without it, and I wish that you would have this too. And he responds with like, oh, that's nice. And I sit there, and I'm like, what is going on? Because I had, like, amped myself up for this, right? I'm like, man, I'm kind of scared of this. I'm going to, like, I'm going to go in there. I've got my plan. Here's what I'm going to say. And his response was just so dismissive. Now, praise God that he didn't, like, stab me to death, which Jesus is warning right here in this passage. But instead, it was still very, like, hurtful to me, right? I just thought to myself, like, no, I told you about my Savior and my God that loves me and that I love so much. And you're like, oh, cool, yeah, it's nice. You equate it to, like, crystals and stuff like that. Like, I'm like, no, this is not the same. Man, I think I dwell on that for so, so very long. I carry it along with me, right? I didn't shake it off. I just sat there in it for so long thinking that I was a failure, that I did something wrong. And it made me reluctant to share again. And I'm sure you've had similar experiences, right? That's the kind of, like, terrible thing about this whole endeavor of sharing the gospel, is that let's say last week the Holy Spirit really moved in you through our passage and said, man, I need to share the gospel with my friend Bill. And then you shared with him on Wednesday, and then he just shut you down. Do you not, like, then be shut down for the next three months? Like, how hard is it to not want to, or like, to want to avoid that situation in the future? Like, we all are wanting that after we get rejected. Jesus' advice here, I think, is a good one. That when you go into a house that rejects or will not receive or listen to your words, there needs to be an element of shaking the dust off of your feet when you leave that town. Can you imagine what that would have been for the, the disciples? They march up into a house and they say, hey, you guys should follow Jesus. And they talk for a long time. Maybe they even spend some time there getting to know them and trust them and love them. And then those people are like, we've heard what you've said. We understand it. We don't want it. Man, can you imagine the sort of, like, like psychological benefit of walking out of that house, slapping your sandals a couple of times and being like, all right, on to the next one. Jesus is sitting on something really healthy for us right now. 
Second, Jesus tells us to be wise. In verse 16, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You may know this verse from other translations that tell you to be shrewd. Now, I like the ESV. It's my favorite translation. Uh, And I like it here, too, telling you to be wise for two reasons. One, because half of us don't know what the word shrewd means. And two, because uh, if you do know what the word shrewd means, it probably means something related to money, right? Like somebody who gets a good deal in a bargain is a shrewd person. That's not really what the text is saying here. In fact, in the Greek, the word is better translated, more often translated as the word wise, but it's sort of like a practical kind of wisdom. So it's not wise in the sense of like Proverbs, though that's definitely like a part of it, but it's more sort of if wisdom and knowledge are kind of a dichotomy, it's more towards the knowledge side, like knowing how to live in the world. I think of it a little bit more like being smart. Like uh, I feel like uh, my dad always used to say like, be smart about this right? Like when you're about to do something and do something really dumb, he'd be like, hey, be smart about this. Or like when you're unloading a truck, you can do it in like one way or two ways. You can do it the hard way or the smart way, right? You know, be smart about this. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that Christians should be smart about the way that they operate in the world. Smart as sheep among wolves. I started thinking about this sheep among wolves thing for a, a long time. And I thought to myself, I see this, like, pack of wolves, and I see this, like, sheep walk up, and he's like, hey, guys, what's going on? And he tries to hang out with them. Now, I don't know why he's there, right? Not really sure what's going on there, what's happening in this situation where a sheep is trying to hang out with these wolves. Maybe he thinks they're cool. They're cool. And I thought to myself, like, what would this sheep have to do to hang out with these wolves? How would a sheep survive that situation? Well, first off, he would need to be careful. He's not going to run around all willy-nilly. He never, get, ne- never gets to let his guard down. He's going to have to be careful about what he does and what he says. He's also going to need to be aware of his surroundings. You know if you're a sheep among wolves, you're constantly looking over your shoulder, and you're like, okay, one, two, three, four, five. Okay, all five of them are right there, right? Like you're like, oh, you know where those wolves are at any given moment. I think in some ways this should remind us that we need to be aware of what's happening in the world around us. The part of being smart as a Christian following Jesus is that you are aware of what is happening around you so that you're not surprised. And remember, too, that in the context here, Jesus is sending out his disciples to share the good news. And so when he says, be smart, he's not just saying, like, hey, you need to be street smarts if you're going to be out there. He's saying you need to be smart as you are sharing the good news. Which ought to be a reminder to all of us that it's healthy to have, like, a little bit of a strategy to this. It's healthy to, like, set some goals and some boundaries. Like, all the things that you would say is smart in the rest of your world would be smart here. That we should actually apply that. One of the things that I do is I try and sort of set some targets for myself, especially when I'm building new relationships, especially with people that don't know about Jesus. Uh, I try to take it smart. I set targets for myself. So that means that I don't walk up and I say, hey, I'm Josh. Do you know where you're going when you die? You could do that. I just don't know if it's necessarily the smartest approach. But something that I hold myself to because I know I'm smart even about the way that I like to operate is I will try and opt out of having a difficult or hard conversation. So one of the things that I do is I say if after three times that I have not or that I have hung out with a new person, if they don't know that I'm a follower of Jesus, they don't know that I'm a Christian, that I'm probably out of my own self-preservation withholding that from them. 
Like, I am probably denying that, denying them that because Jesus is very important to me. So I have set a target, which I think is kind of like a smart goal in some ways, that after I've hung out with someone three times, they better know that I love Jesus, not just that I love watching Chelsea soccer, right? Like, they better know what's important to me, and that is that I am a follower of Jesus. And I know my own temptation and so what usually ends up happening, what very often ends up happening, is after we leave that, like, third hangout, I'm like, oh, no, now I've got to, like, kick it up a notch. And that's when I make it super awkward. I march back in there, and I just say, hey, I like Jesus. And they're like, okay, that's weird. No, they never really react that way because it's not all that weird. But it forces me into, like, that uncomfortable situation when normally I don't want to go to it. Now, that's just one small example. But what I'm trying to voice here is that it is okay and it is healthy to actually set some smart goals, to actually set some plans. Like, if you want to share this kingdom, if you want to show this kingdom like we talked about last week, then you need to be smart about it. Jesus is saying, be practically wise. Make some good plans and decisions about this thing. But that's not all, he says. Smartness has to be coupled with something else. It has to be coupled with innocence we're going to talk about in just a second. But he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. These two have to be put together because sometimes we can justify being or doing evil in the name of being smart, right? Especially when you think about that word shrewd, a lot of times we can even take this as like, oh, I need to be smart about these things. Like you could say, hey, man, I need to be smart about doing, your, doing my taxes. But you could be so smart that you end up in jail, right? Like there is a level at which that you're like past the whatever angle is smartness. And you're like, no, I've transferred over into illegal territory, right? You should be smart about how you represent yourself to someone that you want to date. When you go on that first date, you should probably clean up, be a little bit nicer dressed than you normally are perhaps, now, if you show up in a Ferrari, you've probably outsmarted yourself, right? Unless it's yours. I don't know what you guys drive. Who knows? You're not innocent anymore. That's why Jesus couples these two things together. Because there could be a temptation, and believe me, I am sure that each and every one of you can probably think of an example of ways that Christians throughout history or even living today have tried to be so smart that they've ended up doing harm in the name of doing good. They say, well, you know, we got to be smart about this. I once uh, went to a church, and uh, they, were, they had, like, serious, serious, serious conversations for a long time about whether or not to give away an Escalade. Back then, that was, like, the peak of all uh, quality items, right? But to give away an Escalade for people coming to their Easter service. And they're like, how many people would we get to Easter? That would be great. And then uh, people were like, but is that, the, is that, is that what we want? Like, is, is that who we want to be, like, kind of a lottery, like, if you'll just show up, and they're like, oh, you're hearing the gospel, like, I'm saying all this to say, like, this is a weird, like, tension, and you have to make sure that we cannot do evil on our way to do good. This shrewdness can be a real temptation for Christians to misrepresent themselves, and you probably deal with it every day. You have to make shrewd and smart and wise decisions every single day about how you're going to represent yourself. When you hear two people talking on the train next to you and saying something uh, that is not in keeping with your faith, is it a smart idea to just bust in and be like, hey, Jesus wouldn't like that? Is that the wisest choice? I don't know. It seems like it'd be very difficult to be very winsome in that situation. Is that going to result in them wanting to follow Jesus? I don't know. But when two people are standing with you in a circle at work and you guys are all hanging out and talking about things and they're clearly saying things that are against the ways and truth of Jesus... 
Is it smart to just sort of stay quiet and let them assume about you that you believe the same things? Sometimes, maybe. But at some level, it could just transfer over into being dishonest. You could be standing there quietly to avoid the difficulty that you know it would cause to actually voice what you believe. Right about this one, how do you discern what is shrewd or what is wise, what is smart, when you're thinking about working for a company that may not hold all of your beliefs? How do you discern what is shrewd or wise or smart when you're hanging out with a group of people that sort of value different things than you do and don't follow Jesus in general? I hope you don't hear this as me implying that I think that any of you are doing this wrong or making the wrong choices, though I'm sure that we all are very often because it is on a spectrum and it's unclear. That's why Jesus coupled these two things together. You've got to be smart, but at the same time, you've got to be innocent. And all I want to say is that we ought to be asking ourselves this question all the time. We ought to be asking ourselves this question very, very often. And if we ever find that we're doing evil on our way to do good, we know that we have completely missed it because, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus reminds us that we should be innocent while we are being wise. Craig Blomberg, a Densim professor and probably Colorado's top theological academic. Yep, hot take, I said it. Uh, he wrote in his Matthew's, Matthew commentary, innocent literally means unmixed and refers to a purity of intention. Shrewdness and integrity form a crucial combination not often found in the Christian church. In fact, we often invert the two, proving to be as guilty as serpents and as stupid as doves. I love that both in its cheekiness and its simplicity, right? He's reminding us that innocence actually in this, in this uh, sort of frame uh, means unmixed and pure intentions, that that is who we are supposed to be. The admonition to be innocent while being smart means that we ought to be singularly focused on Jesus. We ought to be unmixed in our intentions so that we can claim, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is who we are to be as followers of Jesus. This is what it would look like to be fully innocent. The best picture of this that ever existed is the idea of the holy fool, which you may have seen in literature, uh, you may have seen and probably not even know, known that that's what it's talking about, but it's kind of like an archetype in literature. And it is a person for whom the presence of Christ has become so much and the world has become so little that he no longer or she no longer cares for the things and actions that typically make up our lives. These are the people who literally give away all of their stuff to those around him. These are the people that are often misunderstood by everyone around them as crazy or as foolish. But I believe that there's something noble in this life. And if you're able to look back through all of church history, you would see dozens and dozens of examples of people that lived exactly this way and did amazing things for the kingdom of God. This combination of both smart and innocent can and should change the way that Christians operate in the world. Perhaps... It would be a new way of Christian political discourse that is to be as innocent as doves while being as shrewd or smart as serpents. To where simultaneously we're able to present and represent truth in a powerful way, in a compelling way, in a smart way, 
We're also so innocent that no one can speak ill around us. No one can speak ill of us. Perhaps, as a new way that Christians could operate in the world, we could become so narrowly and obviously focused on Jesus and simultaneously competent at what we do in the world. So there's that sort of smartness and innocence. That again, even if people look at us and they say, man, I don't understand why Josh follows Jesus. That doesn't make any sense to me, but I can't say anything ill against him. He's not an idiot. He's competent at what he does, but he also really loves Jesus. Imagine the witness that that would be. Christians were known for two things, loving Jesus a lot and being wise. What a different world. Next, Jesus tells us not to be anxious. He says, don't be anxious. I know, it's really easy, right? He says, just stop it. So Jesus says this in verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious of how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, for verse 19, some single men in the crowd today need to make this your theme verse for talking to ladies, right? Can we apply it? No, I'm just kidding. That was a stupid joke. Nobody's laughing today. This is getting awkward. All right, I need to get out of here. So, this is not what that's all about. It's about sharing the gospel of the good news and that there is a better kingdom. And when you're doing that, Jesus is telling you, you need not be anxious about it. Now, I don't think that means that you'll always be successful, That doesn't mean that every time you share the gospel, somebody's going to be like, yes, I would like that very much, sir. It also doesn't mean that you're not going to make mistakes when you're doing it. It just means that you will say what you were meant to say in that moment, and people are going to respond how they wish. Now, that should take some of the weight off of this, right? Like, no longer is someone else's eternal salvation bound up in how well you present things. Now, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is stepping in and filling in the gaps for you as you're trying to share. The idea here is what if you could speak without worrying about saying the wrong thing? Sort of like when a boss gives you a project and he says, hey, this is, he or she says, hey, this is what I want you to do. Do this exactly. Do this 100%. I'm telling you exactly what to say. I'm telling you exactly what to do. In that moment, you are no longer responsible for the outcome of that project. If they don't like it, it's not on you. If you're presenting this project to outside people or something like that, you did exactly what your boss asked you to do, and that's all that he's saying. Here Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to give you the words as you're going. All you got to do is be responsible to go. So don't worry about what you're going to say. Just worry about whether or not you're going. All of this comes from a deep connection to the Spirit. So in those moments when you are sharing the gospel, when you're sharing the kingdom with someone else, check your connection to the Spirit. Spend time in prayer. Spend time embracing the Holy Spirit and asking Him, begging God to actually fill you with words to speak. All right, the last one, and Jesus has to say this one three times because He knows it is tough for for us to understand. Jesus says, do not fear. Verse 26 says this, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus gives us three reasons why we should not fear. First, he tells us that one day you'll be proven true, right? He says in the very first verse of this passage, he says, nothing that is covered will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And so he's saying, like, while it may appear that this gospel of the kingdom is hidden from people now, one day everything is going to be revealed. So you ought to not have fear because one day everything that you're saying is going to come true. No longer are you walking up to someone and you're saying, like, hey, I've got kind of this 50-50 thing about the way that the universe works and whether or not there's a God and not everything like that. Like, maybe it's true. Now you get to walk up and be like, hey, it's true, and you're either going to find this out from me telling you right now, or you'll find it out one day when everything is revealed. So why be afraid? Why be afraid? Now all you're doing is really spoiling the end of the movie not giving your take on it, not like choosing sort of an explanation or opinion about the way that the movie works. You're just saying what's going to happen. The next thing that Jesus tells us is that we should fear God more than the people that we might be sharing his kingdom with. Verse 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This used to make me really, really, really uncomfortable with because I think I used to read it as you better not be afraid or you better not be afraid because God is going to get you, right? I don't know if any of you guys had parents that would ever use this phrase. They'd say, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. You ever heard that one? I don't know if that's a thing. I don't say it to Evie now. I think I heard it when I was growing up, but I don't say it to Evie. I don't know why. It seems kind of fun, you know, at some level, uh, just mildly threatening to your children. That's what this sounds like, uh, at least when I first read it. I thought to myself, like, man, God is trying to scare us into sharing the gospel. But that's not exactly what God is like. I kind of thought it would be like if you were, like, uh, one of Dwayne the Rock Johnson's kids, right? Now, you'd be scared of your dad for sure, right? Everybody's a little bit afraid of their dad. Uh, And most of their dads don't have tree trunks for arms or a look that could pierce your soul. So you'd be, like, a little bit afraid of him, but he's still, like, your dad, right? You know who should be more afraid of your dad is that punk kid that's messing with you on the playground, right? Like, I think that's the kind of fear that we're talking about here. Like, at the end of the day, do you really have to fear that Billy is picking on you? Because you're like, well, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is my father. It's probably what you would say in that situation. And we should both be more scared of that guy, right? Ultimately... This is what it is like. Jesus is reminding you that there is one person who is the most powerful person in the universe, and it isn't that person that you're afraid to talk to. Jesus is saying, be more worried about what God thinks of you than what anyone else thinks of you. And the good thing is, what God thinks about you is that he loves and he values you a lot. See, what if you exchange that word fear for respect? or desire to please here, wouldn't it make more sense? I was thinking about this. I don't, uh, I don't smoke anything. I kind of think it would be cool, right? Not like smoking weed. I don't need anything to make me more hungry or sleepy. But 
I think sometimes it would be cool to have like a cigarette hanging from my mouth. Like I always like that, like Clint Eastwood in movies. You know, he's got the kind of like tucked up in there, like Peaky Blinders. And I'd be like, what just said to me? And it'd be kind of like flopping around on the side. I also thought about smoking a big cigar. I only want to do this because it looks cool, by the way. I don't know if you're going to pick up on that later. I thought about smoking a big cigar because I think Winston Churchill made it look cool. Like, here's this guy, like, most powerful person on the planet during his time, probably, and he's just got this, like, stick hanging out of his mouth half the time. And he's like, go, fight the Nazis, right? I don't know how he talked. But mostly, I think a pipe would be cool. Looking like Gandalf blowing, like, smoke rings and stuff. Like, can you imagine... Like, I'm doing, like, premarital counseling or something, right? And I'm, like, sitting there in the room, and they, like, talk. And I go, you'd have to do this, right? You'd have to go, well, and then you, then you stick it in your mouth, and you do the, you know, that thing? Well, and you kind of, like, sit back in your seat. Like, that's, like, a, that's a baller move right there, you know? And you kind of sit there, and then you're just, and little smoke rings going around them, right? I don't smoke, though. <clears throat> and there is one, <laughs> there is one reason why. And it's not how cool it would look. It is because I fear Sarah Cook more than anyone else. She claims that they are bad for you. She doesn't like the smell. And she says that she wouldn't kiss me if I had them. So sometimes in life, I have found myself uh, out with the fellas, right? That was a cool thing back in the day. The boys were like, hey, we're going to go out. Cigar night. It's cool. Uh, And I think to myself, man, it would look so cool. I could do the Churchill thing. Or they're like, hey, we're doing pipes. And I'm like, yes, that sounds amazing. But I can't. And they would always be like, ah, man, you're whipped. Like, don't let that old lady tell you what to do, old ball and chain, all those stereotypes, whatever it is. And I would say, no, it is because I fear her more than I fear you. And they're like, what? She's a tiny little blonde girl. There is no way that you do that. And I say, well, what I maybe mean to say is that I value her opinion of me much more than I value your opinion of me. Like, I'm not going to do this to look cool in front of you at the expense of the person that I am really trying to impress. I hope you see the connect here with God. What we are saying when we are too afraid of someone else to share the good news with them is that we are saying that I value your opinion of me and I am more fearful of what you would do to me than I value God's opinion of me. I'm more fearful that you might think ill of me because of my Christian faith, because of what I say to you, than I am of what God would think of me. This is how we should look at all of our relationships. We're walking in, especially in an opportunity where we might get to share or show the gospel. We can walk in saying, sure, this could be weird. This could be painful. This could be awkward. This could even cost me something. It could cost you your job. It could even cost you your life. In fact, we have a blessing right now to be living in a time and a place where that is not a risk that is typically on the table, and that has not been true for most Christians or many Christians living throughout all of history and even many Christians living today. So you walk in saying, hey, the risk might be great of what this person might do to me, but I am more scared of God than I am of you. And this is not because he's going to give you a lightning bolt or just smack you down if you do the wrong thing. It's actually because God values you. This God that you should, by all rights, be terrified of is the same one that cares very, very deeply for you, who sent his son to die on the cross for you. Jesus says in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. 
meaning like not even a sparrow dies, even though two of them are sold for a penny, and not even a sparrow dies without your father knowing that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Just let that sink in for a moment. You are God's most beloved creation. You are made in his likeness and image of all of the beautiful and wonderful things that he has made. You are the only one that has the capacity to love. You're the only one that has his capacity to create. You're the only thing that he sent his son to die for. I want you to just imagine this image, especially if you're a person that struggles with the idea of whether or not God actually cares for them and values you. Like if you say to yourself, like, I'm not really sure how much God cares for me and loves me, the church, and if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are part of a church, or the church. The church is referred to often in Scripture as the bride of Christ. But it is the bride of Christ. And Jesus, then, is the groom. Jesus then is awaiting you at the end of the aisle, saying, above all else, above everything else that I have made, above everything else that there could be, forsaking all others, I love you. If we truly believe that, then what is like the value and self-worth that we bring into a conversation where we're sharing the gospel? That statement right there brings clarity to everything else to say, like, yeah, why should I care what this person thinks of me? I am valued completely and wholly by the God of the universe, the only one that truly matters. I wish I could talk forever, but let's just leave it there. Some of you guys need to go home. Write verse 31 on your mirror. Remember it every single morning before you head out into the world. How many of our issues in life, both internally and externally, are built on the idea that we feel like we have no value? How many of our questions that our hearts and our souls are asking are answered by the fact that Jesus, the God of the universe, values you more than anything else? Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.